Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here and to welcome you to um, the Warwick Investment Forum. Uh, and I'm, oh, I never cease to be um, amazed, delighted at the professionalism that the forum brings to, to Warwick. It's entirely organised by students at a very highly professional level with, you know, with moral support, but not really a great deal of administrative support from the university. So it's a, it's a great testament. I'm, I'd like to thank the organisers and the panel uh, who put this together. It's a testimony, I think, to um, the quality of our students that were able to do this. And so it's a testimony to the quality of the forum, the quality of the, of the speakers that you've been able to attract uh, to come here today. The Warwick Investment Forum aims to be, as it says on, on the website in uh, various ways it's been disseminated, it aims to be a first-class forum on uh, economic and financial issues. And it's, uh, I think it, it achieves just that. It's, and certainly this event is one of the biggest events of its kind that's, uh, that's held at Warwick University or indeed at any university in this area. Now, I've been asked to, to, to welcome you, but also to talk a little bit about me, because um, I'm a relatively new dean of the business school. I've only been here, or well, I've been here a few years, but I haven't actually been dean since, uh, since last April. A little bit about what we're trying to do in the business school, what my vision is for Warwick Business School, and also a little bit about uh, some of my own reflections on the financial scene and financial events in the world. In terms of me, well, it says a little bit about me in the, in the brochure. Well, it doesn't say anything about me, because I can tell you a little bit. I have spent about half my career as an academic, and the other half working in the financial sector, working at the Bank of England. I began my career as a, as a foreign exchange trader some uh, 30 years ago. Uh, I was a, a senior economist at the, uh, the International Monetary Fund in Washington, D.C., uh, for five years. And although I became a professor here in, in 1999, for four years, immediately before becoming dean last year, I was actually on leave from the university, and I was working as a managing director at uh, BlackRock Asset Management, which is the world's largest asset management company, where I ran a very large hedge fund with uh, assets under management of about $10 billion. And that was kind of an interesting time to be in the financial markets, as you can imagine. Uh, but it's, it's a time that I'm very proud of in my career, because... Of that $10 billion that was invested with us, something like 95% of it was pension fund money. 5% yeah, was sovereign wealth, high net worth individuals, uh, sovereign funds, high net worth individuals, but 95% of it was pension funds. And we were able to control our risk, and I'll talk a little bit about this in a moment, control our risk in such a way that our, our losses you know, during the worst point of the crisis on the fund I was managing were only about a 5%. And, you know, against the backdrop of a world decline in stock markets, 45%, that was, that was pretty good. And we made it back quite strongly the year after and the year after that. So, you know, in terms of actually safeguarding you know, people's pensions, yeah, I think we did make a very, a very strong difference to, uh, to a number of people in, in, in this country. But um, the committee was so interested in my, uh, in my, in my background, they actually invited my, uh, my former tutor from Oxford to come and talk to you. Uh, I'm not sure if that's a coincidence or not, but when I, uh, I studied uh, PPE at Oxford, my tutor was John Kay, who's actually uh, going to speak to you uh, th this afternoon, I understand. And he'll explain how, you know, teaching me changed his career and uh, he hasn't looked back e ever since, I'm sure. What are the plans for the business school? Well, my vision or the vision we have set out for the business school is a very simple one. It's to be the top university-based business school in Europe within the next five to eight years by any criterion, by, on research, on teaching, or whatever else. And we, are, you know, we do achieve that already in a number of ways. We have 
some of the top undergraduate programs in the UK and in Europe. Our, our BSc in accounting and finance, for example, is rated number one in all the good university guides in the UK. And our other, our other undergraduate degrees are also rated very, very highly. And we're working to raise our rankings also on the MBA and our master's programs and in everything we do. And also increasing our, our research profile. So underlying that vision, we've also set out a mission for the business school, which is just a you know, list of things really that we think is best practice, what good business schools should be doing. First of all, to, to produce and to disseminate world-class, cutting-edge research that is relevant in the sense of being able to influence, to be able to shape the way organizations operate, the way businesses, uh, uh, business is done, the way businesses are led and managed. Secondly and equally, to produce world-class business leaders who are socially responsible, who are creative, imaginative, and able to think on a global scale, regardless of the size of their organization. And finally, I think this is very important, to provide a return on investment for our students and for our alumni over their entire career. So that, you know, you don't just come to Warwick and get a qualification and it gets you your job. It actually equips you with skills, to some extent, human capital, that will last your entire career. But beyond that, actually, actually develops in you a Warwick gene, if you like. I mean, Warwick, you already have that gene because you've been attracted to come to Warwick. What do I mean by the Warwick gene? I mean, we are not, if you like, in American terms, we're not Ivy League, right? We're not Oxford, we're not Cambridge. We're not located in the big city, but we are one of the best universities in Europe, one of the best universities in the world, one of the best business schools in Europe. And I think that, that's very important, the kind of students that we have, and we are very proud to have, is a student that is an able student, is a top student, but is not hidebound by convention, right? I'll tell you a little anecdote, when I, just before, I, before I came to Warwick uh, 10 years ago, I was a professor at Oxford University, and in fact, the college I was at, University College, where I was a fellow, was the, uh, was the oldest uh, college in Oxford, and in uh, the year I was there, well, that year, 1999, it celebrated its 750th anniversary. And um, the Duke of Edinburgh and the Queen visited the college, and they came to meet the fellows, and we were placed in little groups and told what to say. And the Queen came to my group and chatted for a while, and she said, would, would you like to be the master of the college one day? And I said, well, actually, Mum, I wouldn't, because I've resigned. I'm actually going up the road to, to Warwick University. And the Queen said, well, perhaps perhaps Warwick will be the Oxford of the future. And I sort of paused, and I said, well, actually, Mom, with respect, I, I hope and trust that Warwick will be the Warwick of the future. And what I meant by that is that we don't apishly follow. You know, we don't, we're not here to imitate Oxford. We are here to be out there on our own. We are here to be, to be self-confident, but never arrogant. And that's what I mean by the Warwick gene, an assertion, an ability which never spills over into arrogance, but is an important self-confidence. Just to finish off the anecdote, actually, everyone stood back as I committed this faux pas, and then the, uh, the Duke of Edinburgh arrived and insulted me, so that sort of relieved the tension. Uh, I think he said something like, well, you know, what do you do? I said, I'm, I'm an economist. He said, oh, my God, and, and walked off. So <laughs> it uh, diffused the, uh, the tension a little bit. But let me talk a little bit about, then, reflections of an academic practitioner. And as, you know, I ha have been you know, half practitioner, half academic, so thought about the financial markets from a number of viewpoints. To my mind, and I think this was this brought home to me very clearly during the financial crisis, sound investment management requires adequate risk control. That's almost a truism, isn't it? It's almost a tautology. 
And it's not quite 100% true, right? Because, well, it, well it's, it is true. It doesn't tell the whole truth. Yeah? It requires adequate risk control, right? But if it was only just about risk control, you just wouldn't gamble anything, right? Nothing ventured, nothing lost, right? Great risk control, but not great investment advice. So, so you know what I mean? But what I'm thinking about is seeking out strong investment opportunities, but always thinking about adequate risk control. And that's what I want to spend a few moments talking to you about today. And different kinds of risk that uh, asset managers face. Portfolio risk, have you got your portfolio diversified well enough? Um, so if there's a shock you know, to, to one, one kind of asset goes down, will another be compensated for it going up? Operational risk, if you're investing your money uh, in a hedge fund, you know what they're doing with this. Yeah? Systemic risk. Systemic risk is probably the hardest risk to deal with, but it can be dealt with to some extent. I'll talk a little bit about that. Systemic risk is when there's a shock which hits the whole system, like the financial crisis, right? So it doesn't hit one sector, one kind of asset. It actually hits the whole of the, the, the global economy at the extreme, or the whole of the financial sector, uh, and it's very, very, very hard to deal with. And those kind of different kinds of risk, you know, you can think of um, long-term capital management, if some of you may be aware of. This was a a hedge fund that was set up, I don't know, 20 odd years ago by a group of Nobel Prize winners. Nobel Prize winners, well, two Nobel Prize winners in, in financial economics and Harvard professors and, and so on. And they did very well for a number of years. They were making like 40% returns. And they suddenly went belly up and they made huge, huge losses and had to be bailed out by the Federal Reserve in order to, to alleviate the systemic risk on the, uh, on the system. And what kind of risk, what, what was wrong with their risk control? Well, there were a number of problems with it. One was actually illustrates all of these. In a sense, part of it was portfolio risk because they were concentrating all their investments were in, in if you like, what we call those sort of, sort of spread bets, if you like, or um, they're looking at, sort of, they're looking at the, the difference between, say, you know, the, the yield on a long-term bond and a yield on a junk bond. And the difference between them is, you know, long-term government bond is, is fairly, fairly riskless. You know, uh, a below-investment-grade bond, a junk bond, by definition, is, is quite risky. You might not get your money back. And there's a difference between them as the risk premium. And their idea is, the, you know, when these are large, you bet on, you, you, you bet on that difference narrowing over time. Yeah? But they did lots and lots of these, lots of these investments like that, that sort of, those sort of gap investments. Uh, and the problem is, you know, when, they, when, when something affects, you know, risk premium, which makes them sort of blow out, and you've only, you've only got your, your, uh, your investments in one kind of, of asset or one kind of trade, you've got nothing to compensate for it, right? So they hadn't really balance their portfolio properly. Yeah. There's obviously there was some systemic issues in that the Russian default in 1990, the Russian, the Russian uh, crisis triggered a, a huge increase uh, in, in risk premia, a loss of risk appetite, which blew out all these spreads at the same time. Right? So they, they, they were lucky in a sense that they suffered from that systemic risk as well. But there's always a bit of operational risk as well, in the sense that People weren't asking enough questions about what these guys were doing with their money, right? They were saying, oh, they've got a Nobel Prize, must be pretty good. You know, must Harvard professor, must be pretty good. Uh, you know, and really, they said, my God, you're just making the same bet over and over again. You're really exposed, right? So all those different kinds of risks were illustrated in, that, in, the, in the LTCM. What I like to think of as, um, as, as a lesson to take away from the financial cri uh, crisis is something I call Homer's principle. Now, Homer... As the, uh, many of you all know, is the, um, the poet from the um, 12th century uh, BC, the, uh, the father of, uh, of Western literature, if you like, author of the Iliad uh, and the Odyssey, which I'm, I'm sure you've all, you all read uh, in detail or, or, or to read anyway. But actually, it's not that Homer I'm talking about. The Homer I'm thinking of is this one. 
Homer Simpson. So what's Homer Simpson got to do with investment management, with running a hedge fund? Well, one of my favorite episodes in, in, in The Simpsons is where Homer discovers that he has a, a long-lost cousin who, unlike the rest of the, the, the Simpson family, is actually successful, right? And he owns the last privately owned um, auto factory, car factory in Detroit. And when he discovers Homer is his, uh, his, his, uh, his, his, his cousin, he embraces him and says, well, come work for me, cousin. You're an average American guy. You could design for me the average American car, right? You could get a car that every, you know, the average American will buy. Right, this is obviously disaster, right? Because uh, Homer basically designs this dreadful car and no one buys it. The guy goes bust, fulfills his destiny as a loser member of the Simpson family. But what's interesting about it is this. What the first thing that Homer says when he's offered the job, he says, yeah, that, that's a great idea. He says, I've got some brilliant ideas. He's like, you know, you know when you go in the parking lot and you're looking for your car and you look over there and you see the aerial with the little yellow bobble on the end and you know that's yours? Everybody should have one. And that, you know, why, why, is that, you know, why is that amusing? Because Homer doesn't realize that what's good for an individual, having a little yellow bubble on the end of your aerial, is not good for everybody put together. If everybody has a yellow bubble, there's no distinguishing feature, right? And actually, I've called it Homer's principle, but economists have a, have a term for this, which you might know, it's the fallacy of composition. What's good for an individual may not be good for a group when it's put together. In other words, you have to think about individual effects versus systemic or system-wide effects. How does that affect risk modeling? Well, the standard method of risk modeling in finance is so-called uh, value at risk, where you, you look at asset returns, say, over a period of time, and you empirically work out what the distribution is, how many times have they gone off in these extremes of ups and downs, and you can work out, you know, I'm 95% sure that it'll fall within these bounds, right? Seems reasonable, doesn't it? Well, what if I told you that, you know, because I'm a very risk-averse person, when I, when I knew I was speaking here today, I actually came in here at, uh, at 4 a.m. this morning, nobody in the building, because I was worried in case it was a fire, right? And we're on the top, we're on the top floor here. I thought, well, if there's a fire, I won't be able to get out. I'll, I'll burn to death, right? So, um, so I, I stood up here, and I sort of got my stopwatch out, and I raced down to the exit downstairs and timed how long it would take me to get out of the building. And it took me exactly 47 seconds, right? And then I thought, well, you know, what if I stumble, or, you know, if, I, if the door can't open properly, or perhaps I'm going to do it 100 times, right? And then I can get this distribution of how, many how fast I can get out of the building. So I did this, and I got the distribution, and my on average took me 50 seconds, uh, and I was 95%, on 95% of occasions, I got out between 45 and 55 seconds, right? So I'd be 95% sure I can get out between 45 and 55 seconds. So if the alarm goes off now, I can get out in 40 and 50 seconds, right? No. Because you will always also be running for the door at the same time, right? But, and that's okay, that sounds ridiculous. No, only an idiot would work, would, would actually say I can get out of the building in 45 seconds uh, because I've done this timing, you know, at four, four, four in the morning when nobody was here. But that's exactly what value at risk does, right? It looks at the way as a single asset moves over, over, over history without saying, and then you can say, okay, we can get out of this asset at such and such a price if it moves in this direction, not taking account of the fact that at times the whole market might be trying to get out of that asset, right? 
So just as it'll take me two minutes to get out, you know, if I think I can get out of an asset with a 3% loss, when the whole market's trying to get out of that asset, it might be more like a 50, 60, 70% loss, right? Which is what happened during the financial crisis. So the value of risk, if you like, is, in my terminology, subject to, the, uh, to Homer's principle, or subject to um, what economists would call the, 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 the fallacy of composition. So, so one obvious uh, idea is that risk models that are used in asset management ought to, be, ought to account for systemic effects, scenario analysis, stress tests. And um, it's, easy to be, it's easy to be wise after the facts, but the truth is that the, actually the hedge fund um, that I was working for, which was then part of Barclays Global Investors, became part of BlackRock, we actually did have models which shifted our risk measures according to perceived volatility in the market. Right? So we actually were forecasting volatility and looking at financial, event, financial <coughs> political events that we thought, we thought might generate higher volatility. And then we would actually shift our risk matrix so that it would actually factor in a much higher risk scenario, if, that, if you, know, you understand roughly what I'm saying, right? Which meant that we were very defensive, right? I was managing a currency portfolio, so to be fair, I mean, we got a lot of sort of early warning signals, if you like, that currencies were going to be hit badly because it affected equity markets and bond markets slightly before it, it, uh, it hit, the, hit the currency markets for, for one reason or another. But for whatever it was, yeah, we were able to, to adopt this, uh, this scenario analysis and actually adjust our risk measures and think about what if there are crowded trades, what if there is volatility in the market. And that, that's one reason why our, um, our losses were actually much less than, than many of our competitors uh, in the markets at that time. There's also a, a lesson for financial regulation in that traditionally uh, financial regulation is based on the analysis of a single institution. That the, the core of financial regulation is to have prudent capital uh, adequacy ratios. What does that mean? That means if you're, if you're a bank, for example, you can only lend a certain multiple of, of, of capital you're holding, right? It's usually something eight, eight, you know, 12 times, the, 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 you, know, you have to hold 8% of whatever your loan is, right? So you have to have this, the, the, this capital, which, so that if, you know, if there's a run on the bank, everybody, everybody, you know, everybody takes out their money at the same time, you've got a problem, right? Because you've lent much more than you've actually... Um, than, than, than you've actually got. But you, you know, there is, it's thought to be prudent to have a uh, certain amount of capital. Now, what if the value of that capital rises, right? So some of this capital might be, you know, stocks and shares. So you're holding all this, these assets. That's okay, we're only rending, you know, a, a certain multiple, say, 12 times, which you know, the Bank for International Settlements in Baal thinks this is prudent. What happens if the value, if the stock market's booming and the value of your capital rises, right? So, uh, you know, so say the value of my capital is worth 100 quid, and so I lend out 10 times that, I lend out 1,000 pounds, and then the value of the capital goes up to 200 quid, right, because, uh, because the stock market's booming. You say, well, I can, I can double my loans now, right? I can lend out uh, you know, 2,000 pounds, right? But what that means is, as capital r rises in the market, when there's a stock market boom, banks will tend to lend more. And what do people do with that money? They go and spend it, and they buy stocks, and they buy other stuff, and it heats up the economy. And the capital value rises again. And the banks say, oh, great, we can lend some more now. It's prudent. The Bank for International Settlements told me. So you get this actually self-fulfilling cycle in the economy, which actually overheats the economy. And something like that was instrumental, I think, in driving the run-up to, uh, to, the, to, the, to the recent financial crisis. Conversely, when there's a collapse in the stock market, the value of the capital falls. You know, it was 200. It's now worth 50 quid. My God, I better bring in all these loans. Right? So you call in all the loans, 
and you drain liquidity out of the economy, people stop spending, right? They have to go and sell their stocks and shares in order to pay off the loan, and it precipitates or exacerbates, makes worse the drop, the drop in the economy, the drop, the drop in financial markets, right? So this idea that, you know, having capital adequacy ratios, which is very prudent, you know, you should only lend out a multiple of whatever capital you're holding, is a, is a good way of thinking about an individual bank or an individual financial institution. It's a really lousy way of thinking about regulating the economy financially, right? Subject to Homer's principle, what's good for an individual unit what's, is not good for, for the system, for the economy as a whole. What happens if everyone does that at the same time? You get problems. One way you could deal with that is to supplement this, this micro-prudential regulation. Micro-prudential, I mean, like, you know, saying you've got to have a certain amount of capital. You can only, you can only lend a, a certain multiple of the capital you're, you're holding, say, 10 times, 12 times. You could supplement that by systemic effects. So you could say, when the stock market's booming, banks have to hold a higher fraction of their lending, right? So instead of, instead of lending out 10 times, they can only lend out 8 times or whatever, right? So as the value of their capital rises, they don't automatically start shelling out more money and overheating the economy. It'll put, you know, they, they probably they may be able to lend some to, to some extent, but it'll put a break on that. And conversely, when, when financial markets are collapsing, falling, then you could say, well, perhaps you can lend out a higher fraction, in fact, right? And then that would add liquidity into the markets exactly when it's needed. You know, it's a brilliant idea. You should see the report of the, the second Warwick Commission. So the Warwick Commission... Uh, was a university-led initiative uh, on which, which I served. I think there were, there were three of us from the university, uh, me from the business school, uh, two people from the politics department, and we had nine external uh, advisors, external members of the, of the, of the commissioners, if you like, and we, we spent uh, nine months going around the world interviewing people in Washington, D.C. and New York, and also and we wrote a commission. We wrote a report on exactly what we thought uh, the problems of the financial crisis were, and how they could be alleviated by better financial regulation. Uh, and I've listed the website there. You can, you can download the report of the Warwick Commission, which was presented to, uh, to, to, to the U.S. government and the U.K. government uh, and other governments throughout the world, and we believe is having an influence on the way the, way, uh, the debate is, is proceeding on financial regulation. If you don't like it, mean, you can just Google Warwick Commission. Uh, and, and we'll come up with the, uh, with the website. There's, I won't go through the other recommendations. There are, there are a whole set of other recommendations that we came up with uh, that we thought might be useful in improving or alleviating the, uh, the, the effects of the, the, the system-wide issues on the financial markets. But I'll leave you to, uh, to, to look at that in, in more detail. Thank you for coming, and I'm sure you'll have a very productive uh, and informative day. <laughs>